Are you ready for an interview with creative people too? Carolina. It's Carolina Stories. All right, giddy up. Welcome to episode two of Carolina Stories. Today's guest is Mills Snell, a vice president with Permanent Equity. Permanent Equity brings a very unique approach to the private equity industry. They focus on small businesses, their ideal hold period is forever, and they avoid excessive leverage. Mills joined the firm in 2018, opened their Columbia, South Carolina office, and is primarily focused on deal-related activities. In addition to being an expert on the small business marketplace, Mills has an insatiable curiosity, which has led to sourcing off-market commercial real estate properties and working at an Amazon fulfillment center for a day. I always enjoy my time with Mills, and his full contact approach to learning is something I'm trying to emulate in my own life. Also, one quick disclosure as I believe in being completely transparent with you throughout this podcast. I am an investor in Permanent Equity 1 and Permanent Equity 2. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the entire team and their approach to investing, but I also have a vested interest in their success as a firm. All right, with that, let's dig in. So we're recording this on Thursday, March 19th, and COVID-19 is obviously top of mind for everybody. Just a devastating kind of humanitarian situation first, and then just with a lot of second and third order consequences as well. So health concerns are number one priority, and I'll just do my quick little public service announcement here for anybody listening. I mean, please stay at home and take care of yourself. The only thing that strengthens this virus is really human interaction. And if you stay healthy and you stay out of the hospital... It's one more patient that can get treatment and one more life that can potentially be saved. But shifting kind of to the second and third order effects, Mills, how do you think this will potentially impact small business owners? Yeah, uh, that's a great intro. And I guess I should caveat this by, you know, saying I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist or an infectious disease doctor. So I'm glad you're not asking me to comment on on the first order. No, it's really interesting to see I think one, just the amount of assumptions that the small business community had kind of come to really believe really innately, right? Which is that demand is kind of impenetrable, right? Or just immune from large systemic shocks. And so there's a part of me that, you know, we look at a lot of small businesses at permanent equity and we, you know, want to be kind, right? And want to be gentle when we're looking at a business, even if we know we can't invest in it. Um, like restaurants, for example, we, we've not really seen a restaurant business model that really excites us and feels like it's durable and can kind of consistently achieve, you know, decent margins. But you think about, you know, how fragile the restaurant ecosystem is now. And from seeing some of these stats from things like open table, where bookings are down almost to zero now in a lot of markets, um, that's just catastrophic in a lot of ways. So there's part of me that feels, I think, discouraged just because there's, you know, a whole large portion of the economy that's tied to that and a lot of people's livelihoods and I mean, places I go, right? I'm a, I'm a consumer of those, those things. So there's a part of me that feels discouraged, but also, you know, I think as I've just kind of watched or observed over the past few days, I think there's been a lot of ingenuity and kind of creativity and scrappiness or hustle on the part of a lot of small business owners. When you were here in Columbia, there's a coffee shop right down the street, a few doors down. And I drove by this morning and I saw that they, you know, the the city of Columbia, South Carolina, where I live there, we're under a state of emergency and, and they've kind of prohibited, you know, any in-service for any restaurants. But what they've done is they've converted to basically door service for coffee and, you know, some pastries and things like that. So 
you know, I'm good friends with the guy who owns that, Sean, and, and just thought like, good for him, right? I'm going to go down there and buy a cup of coffee or something like that just to support him and um, make sure that they continue to do well. There's another deli that my wife and I like. And in a matter of like days, they very, very quickly, I don't know how they did this. I, I've yet to find out, but they uh, expanded their mobile app to be able to do basically like curbside pickup. And I, I'm sure that was like a huge feat, right? That just you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And, and so kind of at a main street level, you can kind of see those things, right? And they're very apparent. We're like, hey, good for them. Like cheering those guys on. Like I want to, you know, do all the things that people are prescribing, like buy a gift card and, you know, support them in any way that I can. I guess a tier above that, it's really interesting to see the way that kind of small and medium-sized businesses are grappling with it. And, and it's, it's, it depends in a lot of ways. We own some businesses that have kind of medium term feedback loops. So companies that probably won't notice a real change in their demand for months, right? Uh, if they do like big contract work, if they're, you know, subcontractors or in construction, really the health of the projects they're working on, all their margin is kind of won or lost in the very last segment of the project. They're just kind of billing cost along the way. And so they won't really know distress until it comes time to kind of get their profit or, or find out if they're going to, you know, book a loss. And so those are a little bit more concerning, right? And as we look at inbound opportunities, we're really focusing on things that have very tight sequencing and small feedback loops, tight feedback loops around demand. Like what's website traffic doing? What, like, what are your lead? Like if it's a, if a lead leads your business, how, you know, what's lead volume like and what do you see on that side so that we're not trying to, get involved in something that we're basically paying right for the top still because the trickle down effects haven't been felt. So I don't know if that, that kind of answers it, but, but across the spectrum, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, it's just devastating, right? Because you talked a lot about the demand shocks, but then you also have the supply side shocks as yeah. well as potential labor shortages if people yeah. can't go to work. It's interesting though, on that point, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's a business owner, a former client of mine. She uh, sources product from China and she's got an order outstanding for like 5,000 units. And I said, hey, what, what are you kind of seeing and hearing, right? From both the manufacturer and from the freight side of things. And she's saying, you know, really at this point, it doesn't look like there's going to be any interruptions. But the interesting anecdote that she had was that her, you know, manufacturer, her supplier in China reached out to her and said, hey, if it would help you from kind of a marketing standpoint, if you want, I can throw in basically surgical masks. It's a, it's a paper product, like a dated planner. But the guy was saying, hey, if you want, I'll throw in these masks and you can market as like buy this thing and also get a mask along with it, which I thought... <laughs> That's incredibly scrappy on his part, right? <laughs> He's just like, hey, we, there's obviously no shortage of masks or something. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think time will tell about how supply chain disruption is actually going to occur, uh, especially when it's, it's not just like a hurricane hits, right? And all the resources from other parts of the country can kind of move into a, a specific area. Um, but at least in that one anecdotal case, it sounds like they'll still be okay. Maybe they just won't take prioritization from a custom standpoint, you know, but be really interesting to see how that pans out. Got it. And then how do you think it uh, trickles down into the commercial real estate market and other small business creditors? Yeah. You know, I've seen folks uh, from kind of a landlord and a property owner standpoint, giving early indication that they're saying, Hey, we have tenants who are telling us like, we're not going to pay second quarter rent. From what I kind of see and know, you know, there's, there's a lot of folks out there who, 
probably fit into two broad categories of the commercial real estate market. Uh, and you've met some of these folks when you came to Columbia, but you know, there's folks who have owned property for 30 or 40 years. It's paid off. Properties are cash flowing, no debt service, you know, no debt on, on the property. They will, you know, take a hit, right? But they're definitely not going to go under. But then on the other hand, you've got these folks who are kind of new entrants, like really hungry, trying to grow fairly aggressively. And they're probably redeploying all the equity they have. They're just cashing out, right? Each property, refinancing and, and kind of taking all the cash and moving on to the next project. I think those folks are obviously going to have a lot harder time figuring out how to manage cash flows if rents. And, you know, you've got this also regulatory overlay where, a lot of, you know, states and municipalities are saying, look, you can't evict people right now on the single family side or the commercial side. And that creates a really interesting, probably perverse incentive, right? For, for business owners who maybe even have the means to pay, but are trying to hoard cash as much as they can. So I've not heard, obviously it's super early still. I haven't heard of any kind of major defaults from a tenant standpoint, uh, even just in terms of paying their their rent, but I have heard kind of rumblings of it. This area, the Five Points area of Columbia, it's a lot of hospitality, lots of bars, restaurants, lots of food service that hasn't really been able to pivot to a carryout model. There's a relatively new restaurant, uh, Home Team Barbecue, that has locations in Charleston, South Carolina here, and I think one in Denver. My wife just told me yesterday they laid off their 400 employees so that they could claim unemployment. They're not even trying to go to a takeout only model. They're just like, hey, this can be better for you guys. But I don't know. I mean, we'll, it'll, it'll take, I guess, a week or two weeks to see unemployment claims. But I think that's going to be really, really staggering. Wow. And you mentioned um, there's talk about not being able to evict or foreclose and the perverse incentives that potentially creates. Is there any government intervention that you think might work or any um, kind of uh, proposals that you've seen that are that show promise in your in your opinion? I sit on a board for the city of Columbia that's uh, it's called the commercial revolving loan fund but basically the, the it's a mechanism for the city to help provide bridge financing so you know traditional lender maybe can cover the vast majority of a capital needs for a small business but if there's a delta then the city can come in through some uh, economic development funds and uh, different like community development block grants basically is the source of funding, but they can come in and take a subordinated position, very, very long amortization life, very easy for cash flow. And we had a, an emergency call the other day that basically said, Hey, let's put all of these loans kind of on pause, right? We're not going to collect principal and interest payments for the next three months. Let's just help these folks from a kind of a cushioning standpoint. I think that helps, right? But obviously banks don't have the same leeway to do that. Just kind of cease collecting. I think there have been some interesting, you know, SBA related kind of just rumblings that I've heard about, but I don't think any of that's material yet. But in the same way that, you know, we had a really catastrophic flood here in South Carolina in 2015, and there were some small business loans that are available because of natural disasters. I think if those things kind of can pan out, that'll help a lot of folks. But I think it depends on the business, right? If you're on the verge of distress already and you see demand go to zero, a loan isn't necessarily going to help. If you're going, hey, I don't know if demand's going to dry up for three weeks or three months or for 12 months. I, I can't imagine with all that uncertainty that folks are going to double down and take $250,000, $300,000 loans if they're just going, well, it's just more kind of rope to hang myself with. Completely. Yeah, scary time for sure. But shifting a little bit to your background, I mean, you've been involved with small businesses for a while. Can you talk about your experience with uh, Pendleton Street Advisors? 
Yeah. Yeah. So Pendleton Street is a, a firm that I helped start. It kind of has a, I guess, a sad uh, origin story in that me and my partners, my former partners at Pendleton Street, we all worked together for our previous founder, a guy named Bill McAfee, who was kind of a mentor and a dear friend to all of us. And Bill uh, started a wealth management firm that focused predominantly on small business owners. He basically said, hey, there's this real dilemma. These folks are wealthy on paper, but their balance sheet is about 90% illiquid. It's all tied to a small business that they control or their family controls. And he came out of a bank trust department. The bank basically was somewhat limited, right? They could lend that business money or they could cross sell them wealth management or insurance products. But at the end of the day, they really couldn't do much to kind of be Bill's vision was let's be kind of a, a, an analyst for this business and say, hey, here's the underlying value drivers of your business. You know, you, you have this in your public market portfolio. There's analysts who cover Apple and all the suppliers of Apple, right? What if we kind of took that view, that value-based view uh, on your business and, and tried to determine what are the things that are kind of contributing to risk and things that are contributing to reward or cash flow? So me and a, and, a, and a handful of different guys worked for Bill. And then in 2012, he died suddenly in an accident. And me and my partners kind of picked up the pieces in a lot of ways and bought the business from his widow. Uh, we were, in essence, kind of like the, the cobbler's kids who didn't have shoes. We gave a lot of advice, right? And, and Bill gave a lot of advice around business succession planning and uh, having your ducks in a row from an estate planning standpoint. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, that's multiplicative and not additive, you know. And so Bill had about 95% of a plan in place. Um, and unfortunately, that other 5% was kind of, you know, time zero and kind of took us, it, it, it caused a lot of turmoil. Um, long story short, me and my partners ended up buying the business from his widow and uh, moved all of our clients over and almost all of our employees. Some folks decided to go different directions, but really continued doing that work. And so we worked with a handful of families that either previously owned businesses and we managed their liquidity post-close or folks who were kind of getting ready for a sale and wanted help, you know, kind of just saying, hey, what, what does a buyer see when they look at my business? So it was a good kind of continuity business model to say, well, help get you ready for a sale. We'll hold your hand through the transaction. And then once you get liquid, we'll manage your money kind of all towards the same end, right? And uh, it provided some really unique opportunities. I mean, I did not go to business school. I don't have an MBA. Uh, I don't have a, a business or a finance undergrad degree. I have an intercultural studies, uh, a liberal arts education. And had never taken a business class and kind of learned uh, in the trenches, so to speak. My first day working at a wealth management firm, I didn't know the difference between an ETF or a mutual fund or anything like that. And, uh, very much just a steep learning curve, but it was a huge opportunity, right? To just be able to come in without any presuppositions or say like, hey, I worked at you know this big bulge bracket bank. Here's the way we do things. And that gave me, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of flexibility, right, in, in, in the learning curve. So me and my partners bought that firm from, from our previous owner's widow and uh, continued to just kind of grow really just relationally, right, by, by continuing to do this kind of niche work for small business owners. It was basically businesses that were larger than $5 million, but less than $25 million typically in enterprise value. So the way we would term it is kind of too big for a business broker and too small for an investment bank. 
Uh, and it's just an underserved kind of area of the market, right? And we were not uh, man with a hammer. So there's a lot of kind of man with a hammer in that segment of the market. Like if you're an ESOP guy, then it doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is ESOPs, right? Or if you're, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And so we kind of had a lot of tools in our toolbox and would just help these folks really in a lot of ways position for optionality around an exit, even if they didn't exit, just how do you make the more, how do you make the business more valuable for you, which makes your life easier. And that also makes it more valuable if somebody else is going to come and pay you for it, you know? Yep. What do you think most business brokers or advisors get wrong? Most of that world is hits driven, right? So if you, uh, if you're a business broker, it, it kind of does it, it does it, matter per se, you just need as many shots on goal as you can. So you probably uh, take a bunch of leads that you think are very low probability of close, but you, you sign them up anyways, because you can kind of put them through the, the kind of formula, so to speak of like, let's just turn this around. Let's put it out in the market and let's see if we get any bites. And they probably minimize the amount of time and effort and energy they put into it. But if it sells, then great, you know, and it's, Frankly, like we know this, but it's a, it's a highly inefficient market. Whether you're talking about a $30 million manufacturing firm or a $500,000 convenience store, it's still pretty inefficient and illiquid. And so I think business brokers, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, they, they get a bad rap. Sometimes there's bad actors that contribute to that. Um, but, but there's certainly a need, right? If, if you own a, like a small deli or, uh, you know, a small kind of, you know, 10, 20 employee professional services firm or something like that. Like your options are very limited if you don't have a key employee who you can kind of pass the baton to. Uh, the problem, I guess, is that the incentive structure is really flawed. Most business brokers are just getting paid a success fee. And so it's hard to necessarily kind of open your world up to different buyers. If, if you're only getting paid a success fee, there has to be meaningful amounts of cash changing hands at closing. And so then the business broker's advice is probably a little bit skewed because you don't, you're not going to recommend, Hey, seller finance part of this, you know, to your key employee, he can go to the bank and get a loan just because you're, you're starting to slice the pie really, really thin. And so I think that's, that's part of it, right? Is that the incentive structure is flawed. It's also, I mean, they're up against a really tough scenario, which is that a lot of these small businesses are just not sellable. You know I mean? They just, they just, quite literally can't transfer from one owner to another because of idiosyncrasies about the business or the customer mix or, you know, customer concentration, whatever it may be. Uh, I think the folks who do really well, uh, they either find a really developed niche, right? Like maybe they just work with one specific type of businesses or within a very specific industry. And then they kind of have a viral lead generation funnel because everybody knows people who are in their industry, right? Like if you're a, you know, if you're a multifamily electrical subcontractor, you probably know all the other multifamily electrical subcontractors in different markets because you go to trade shows or whatever. And if you hear of a guy who had a really great, you know, sale, uh, you're going to ask him, Hey, how'd you do that? I've kind of been thinking the same thing. I'm not really sure how to go about it. You know? Um, so we, we grew in a lot of ways through that kind of word of mouth. And it wasn't because we honed in on a specific niche of like we sell, you know, fitness centers or something like that. It was just that we kind of catered to folks who otherwise were underserved and a lot of small business owners, it's lonely at the top, you know, and, and they, they don't have a lot of options or necessarily a lot of people they can talk candidly to uh, about kind of this looming dilemma of how do I sell, you know? 
that makes a lot of sense. And so then you ultimately decided to exit Pendleton Street. Um, how did you think about that decision process? Yeah, it was very uh, it was very complicated. I had three young kids at the time. I now have four young kids, and it was just a it was a tricky scenario. I had two really great partners in that business, uh, both great guys. They're still doing the exact same work. And uh, at the end of the day, I'd had a lot of people kind of in my corner who I think had just better foresight around it than I did, but they were just kind of saying, "Hey, Mills, you're hitting a ceiling here," and I didn't feel it right, or I didn't feel all of it, and as I played the tape out, I just realized, you know what, this decision's going to get harder. You know, the longer I stay here, the numbers are going to get bigger. If we do well, right, if we keep being successful, it's just going to be harder and harder to leave. And both my partners were younger guys too. So there was not a scenario where I was going to kind of buy them out and help fund their retirement and be able to have control. And so it was a myriad of different things, but thankfully we, we did have a good buy sell agreement because of our, our previous experience of learning the hard way. And so it gave me the luxury of having kind of a long runway and, and a few years for my wife and I to say, really, what do I want to do? What's, what's kind of the, the next best step. And so I promised my wife I'd take a quarter off and uh, we found out we were pregnant and it turned into maybe seven or eight months off. And, I did a couple of real estate projects in the meantime and, and tried to kind of keep myself occupied, but it, it was really good, right? I mean, I'm not innately very skilled at being present at home and kind of turning my brain off to all the things that occupy me, you know, during the day. And so it really was stretching, but it helped me to be, helped me in kind of in the direction of being more present with my kids and, and being more attentive to them and my wife. Absolutely. It's such a luxury to have that period of time off. It's almost like a reset button where you can um, just figure out, as you said, like figure out what you want to do. And, and it's really cool that you experienced that. And then, so you took six, seven months off and then you joined Adventures, now called Permanent Equity, uh, led by Brent Bishore. How did you meet Brent? How did you come about that opportunity? Yeah, Brent and I, uh, we have been friends probably for five years or so now. I had this this woman who would uh, reach out to me from time to time. She was a ghostwriter for a bunch of different trade publications. And so anytime she needed kind of a high level finance, you know, anything kind of corporate finance related or transition and succession planning related, anytime she was writing an article like that, she would reach out and get on the phone. She'd interview me and kind of intersperse kind of her own writing and copy and then my kind of commentary. And so I ended up being in a bunch of really weird trade journals. So like, electrical distributor magazine and pumper magazine, which is a magazine for the guys who own septic tanks, uh, septic tank pumping trucks. So just, you know, kind of crazy, crazy trade journals, but also in pool and spa news. And so I was in pool and spa news kind of quoted as this authority, right. For uh, pool m and I've never sold a pool business. I will probably never advise on the sale of a pool <laughs> business. That's not what I do anymore. But Brent adventures at the time, now permanent equity, he owed, uh, the largest in-ground swimming pool builder in the U.S. And so it's a company called Presidential Pools out in Arizona. And so Brent was like, oh man, maybe this guy, you know, knows something about pool m &A. and And he reached out and, you know, sitting on the sell side, like I did for a number of years, you start to just get to know a lot of buyers. And most buyers kind of fit neatly into a couple categories and there's very little differentiation between them. It's like they're a financial buyer, uh, meaning they're probably an independent sponsor or a search fund or a private equity firm. And they kind of have a, you know, relatively the same playbook. Uh, or they're a strategic buyer and they you know, kind of run a very different playbook, but it kind of different pros and cons for, for sellers. But the more I got to know Brent, so we got on the phone, right? He reached out or, or I think he looked at my LinkedIn profile and I read about the firm and I reached out and 
we just kind of hit up, hit it off and, and kept chatting. And I went out and spent time with him and his family and just got to know him. And when I was leaving Pendleton street, I, you know, we just kind of stayed in touch and we kept saying, man, there's, we'd love to do something together. Right. But I knew he wasn't going to move to South Carolina and uh, he knew I, I didn't want to move to Missouri. And so we just kind of said, let's not force it, but let's continue to kind of just talk and f- try to find the right fit. And I think in like a one week period, Brent came across like three deals in South Carolina and we kept talking about him, right? He's like, Hey, do you know this company? What, you know, what do you think about it? That kind of thing. And uh, he called one day and said, Hey, what if, what if we did this? What if you opened an office for us, you know, came on board as part of the team and Brent's just incredibly kind, super generous, had been really, really thoughtful about just trying to help me think about what was next. I'd always just thought I'd do my own real estate deals until I found a business to buy and run myself. And we spent a couple hours just trying to poke holes in it and figure out why it wouldn't work. And we kind of kept, it just kind of kept surviving, right? It kind of kept floating to the top. And and so long story short, I joined the team and spend most of my time, the vast majority of my time on our deal funnel. So all our inbound opportunities and interacting with sellers. So very similar to what I was doing before, but just kind of on the other side of the table. Love it. Um, and Brent obviously has a public presence, very dynamic leader. I mean, what are the things that we may not see behind the scenes? Are there any non-obvious observations that make him successful? I think maybe this is, this is probably hiding in plain sight more than it is non-obvious, but I mean, Brent really does kind of walk the walk and it's, there's consistency, right? So, you know, I think publicly, like if you follow him on Twitter, if you hear him on podcast, he seems super kind, right? And like really engaging and like very transparent and honest. And that exact same thing is true and consistent kind of, I'd say behind closed doors or just in one-on-one conversations or he's consistently that way. And it's not just, this kind of transactional, Hey, I think I might be able to get something from you. And so I'll be this way on the front end, but then only so long as it serves me, you know, I've just consistently in all these non public ways, right. Seeing Brent go above and beyond in kind of thankless ways to just reap. You know, I, I think we both really hold to the idea that like you reap what you sow. Right. And so how can we just kind of sow liberally and so generously into things that may not even pay off for us. Right. But may pay off for, for that person or for other people. Fantastic. Um, and so you've seen a lot of small businesses, both at Pendleton Street and now in your role at Permanent Equity. What is the best business or maybe most unique business you've kind of come across? Brent likes to answer this question, I think, like with things like pet crematorium and things that have made it on podcasts. I have a hard time with this one because I, I fall into, I don't know what behavioral bias this would be, like maybe primacy and recency effect or something like that. But I, my favorite business is usually the one that I'm doing a deep dive on at any given moment it becomes all consuming and uh, I'm, I'm naturally guilty of typically being a people pleaser. And so I really want to kind of win the deal. Part of that is also winning the relationship, right? Because if we hit it off with this person really well, and they feel really confident about what we bring to the table as a partner and a capital provider, then that disproportionately kind of skews the deal in our favor. And so I tend to trend towards just being a little bit too obsessive about winning the deal. And and I have to constantly kind of hit pause. And sometimes a lot of folks on the team help me hit pause and say, sure, we may win the deal, right? But like, do we actually want the asset? Is this a company, like, even if we win the deal, are we going to be pleased that we own this company in a year, three years, five years, 10 years? And so that is a hard thing to balance, right? It's a hard thing to kind of pull my head out of the weeds, especially when there's a lot of momentum and people like us and they really value the strengths that we bring to the table and, you know, so on and so forth. 
We've looked at some really, really interesting asset light, high return on invested capital companies that fall into just really obscure niches. And I can't necessarily go into a lot of detail because we, we signed NDAs to look at these businesses, but we tend to look fairly disfavorably at companies that are you know high recurring CapEx with no real no high return on on those assets, right? And so those are opportunities we can really quickly filter out, but but it's it's tough because they're really integral parts of the economy, like refrigerated trucking carriers, right? Like we're never going to buy one of those businesses in all likelihood, just because you're constantly having to buy new trailers, new trucks, you wear them out, and the returns on those assets are so thin right now. But I, I like having kind of, you know, cold milk when I go to the store and I want it to be cold the whole time it's been in kind of the supply chain. And so uh, it's, it's tough because I know that those are integral parts of the economy. I just don't want to own them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What do you think makes acquiring small businesses so difficult? I mean, Brent re- like refers to all of the gates that you have to go through, sourcing, negotiating, diligence, documentation, et cetera, operating. Why do you think it's um, so challenging? Well, you know, I'm a little bit skewed towards kind of the deal side of things versus post-close operations, at least right now. But so so my answer is going to come with that kind of bias. But I think it's because most small business owners haven't diversified their own balance sheet. And so you've got this conundrum where it's all eggs are in this basket and expectations are really high around valuation and kind of cash out. And so you're, you're kind of at odds ends, right? On, it, it doesn't have to be win lose for either side, but when expectations are super high for a business owner and they haven't necessarily planned ahead for, you know, what their cost of living is going to look like when you take away this amazing free cash flow generating machine. If you're going to get paid, you know, even at the highest end of private market multiples, let's say you're going to get paid six, seven, eight times for just a phenomenal high recurring cash flow, low churn, asset light, entrenched customer base type business with no hair on it, which those don't exist. But let's just say you get paid six to eight times cash flow. That's six to eight years worth of cash flow. And most of these business owners, they aren't exiting when they have six to eight years worth of life expectancy left, right? They're hoping that they've got 30 years worth of life expectancy left. And so the conundrum that most of them face is, especially, I'll I'll fast forward maybe a month. A month ago, most of them are going, well, why don't I just keep owning this business? It's 11 years worth of a bull market. They're going, look, it's relatively risk less in their mind to keep owning this thing and just keep taking the cash flow. Why would I sell to you for three, four, five, six times free cash flow when I could just keep owning it and kind of all other things be equal? I still own the operating asset. And I think that's indicative of a long bull market, right? It's indicative of relatively few shocks to the system externally. You know, we don't look at any distressed businesses, but if you find a business, you know, I'll say as of, again, a month ago, three months ago, that had had some huge impact externally or internally, maybe like we've looked at things that have failed kind of ERP implementation that just all of a sudden revenue drops by 50% or something crazy. Those businesses, you can kind of see and triangulate why they didn't do well, but we've got a huge kind of boom, right, of businesses that are coming up that they're going to have a totally different set of circumstances and the market probably just opportunity cost is, is a huge function of this, but you know, it's going to reprice a lot of these assets just based on cost of capital across the board. 
Yep. And so if somebody was interested in looking for a small business to buy, particularly now that there's been some dislocation in the marketplace, how would you suggest they start the search or the sourcing process? Um, Obviously, there's the broker network, but if they wanted to go more of a proprietary route, how do you think they uh, they should approach that? Well, I mean, there's no substitute for just kind of standing at the plate and watching pitches, right? You know, you could, uh, when, when I first started buying single family homes years ago, and, and Brent hates real estate, and, uh, and so he's, he's in a lot of ways talked me out of, you know, uh, all my real estate holdings. Uh, I still own a couple of, of good, you know, good properties, but I haven't bought anything, you know, recently. But when I first started looking at single family homes, I could have kind of sat on Zillow all day, every day and run the cops, right? And, and built a free cash flow model and tried to, you know, kind of understand, oh, this is a winner or not. But at the end of the day, like you kind of got to get out there, right? You got to look at property. You got to actually try and negotiate a deal. You got to put something under contract. You got to, you know, hit your face on the pavement is what we like to say. And so it isn't until you kind of have put a house under contract paid for inspections, started to sink some hard costs in it, and then realized, oh, you know what, I found, you know, there's a, you know, a, a spring underneath the house or something like that, right? Uh, you got to learn the hard way in a lot of cases. And thankfully, I do think a lot of that just early kind of tilling of the soil can happen in a pretty expense light way, I mean, meeting with business owners, right? And just understanding how, how does their business work? Asking good questions. How do you make money, right? How much money does it cost your business to make money? How did you get into it? Were you pulled into it? Did you push into it? You know, all those kind of intuitive, just kind of probing questions really helps. I like asking a lot of business owners, wherever they are, like if there was a, if you didn't own your business, right, what business would you like to own in your area? And usually it's not a specific one, like, you know, XYZ plumbing or something like that. But they're more like, you know, I think this business would always be interesting. The flaw in that is that the grass is always greener, greener, right? So if you own a product-based business, you think, man, if I could just own a service-based business, it didn't have to deal with inventory. And, and the inverse is true too. But there's no substitute for getting out there, having conversations, studying an NDA, learning to sign. What, what do you sign? What do you not sign? You know, looking at company financials, meeting with an owner, asking them questions. Like it's, it's just very, very time intensive. And, you know, we talk to a lot of independent sponsors. We talk to a lot of family offices who are trying to go direct, although I think that'll change now. But, you know, there's, it's not uncommon for people who are kind of even semi-pro at this to look at 150 deals and not get under LOI on any of them. And so it's just very inefficient. And I think that's what people kind of have to keep in mind. Yep. So I have to ask you, if you weren't involved with permanent equity, what business would you love to own in, um, in Columbia, South Carolina or um, the, uh, the area? That's a good one. I mean, before I joined Permanent Equity, I looked at a number of deals for a number of years, right? Everything from run-of-the-mill kind of Main Street type businesses that I learned really quickly. Uh, there was a restaurant here going out of business and I kind of had this in, inside track that I realized I could basically buy this restaurant for nothing, right? I mean, I mean the, the, the previous owner had something else they were going to work on. They would give me all the recipes. They would give me all the equipment. Like really, they were just it was just given, it was zero cost, right? To get in. And so I asked a friend who uh, has owned five or six different restaurants and doesn't own any now. And I said, Hey, you know, this business, you know, kind of the loyal following, you know, how sad everybody is that they're going to close. And he was like, yeah, you know, I really, I really think you should do it. And I was like, seriously, you think so? Like you've been in the restaurant business. Are you sure? He was like, yeah. 
you know, as long as you're okay with probably being divorced in five years, not knowing your kids, <laughs> you know, you might be an alcoholic. And I was like, whoa, whoa, no, I don't want that. And he was like, no, seriously, I think you should do it. And I was like, no, no, I, I don't want that trade. That's not what I'm trying to optimize for. The illusion, right, is that there's kind of a, a silver bullet out there of if, if only I could buy this business, if only permanent equity could buy this business, then we're really going to be set. And the reality is that, you know, there's no, there's no magic wand out there. All these businesses have, it's hard, right? I mean, even, even kind of growing from nothing to something is really hard, but then maintaining that is just incredibly difficult and it's a it's an uphill battle every day you kind of never know right like where is the next surprise going to come from where's the next fire going to pop up and that's that's the cost of entry yep and then shifting gears a little bit but permanent equity did something that i thought was just brilliant in terms of extending their network with both the orbit and the scout program so can you talk about those two programs and if folks listening want to get involved with either of those, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So the orbit kind of came first and it was just a natural extension of kind of what was happening innately in our, in our firm, which was that we like doing business with uh, good folks, right? People who are thoughtful, people who are kind, whether they work directly with us, work for our portfolio companies, refer business to us, whatever the case may be. And so we know that like, if you introduce me to somebody, Steve, I'm going to take that as a huge priority because I think highly of you and I respect you. And so I'm going to prioritize understanding, Hey, why, why did Steve want to make this introduction? You know, what is it about this person that he thought was kind of worthwhile? And so how can I kind of mind that and make the most of it? And what can I do for that person? And so orbit was just a natural outflowing of that to say, Hey, there's folks who kind of orbit around our firm or kind of touch us tangent tangentially that we think we'd like for them just to be more in the loop, right? On things we're doing. We'd like to tell them earlier about things before we tell the public. We'd like to kind of keep them in the loop whenever we have a crazy idea that may turn out to be a good one, may turn out to be a bad one. But how can we kind of keep these folks a little bit closer and help blur the lines, right? Is, is what we talk about a lot, blurring the lines between who's an insider and who's an outsider of our firm. And we've got folks, I mean, I met with a guy who owns a $15 million business in North Carolina who was passing through town. And I was like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're in orbit. What do you, you know, you're obviously not looking for a job, right? And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course not. But like, I just want to be closer to what you guys are doing. And so he's not going to respond to kind of the, hey, we have, a, we have a need in a portfolio company or a friend of ours who owns a business has a need. That's not why he's in orbit. But we try and just invert the natural cycle of job placement and kind of the inquiry there, which is, Hey, I sent you my resume. I haven't heard back in two to three weeks. Are you guys still looking? We've just tried to say, what would the opposite of that be? It would be not job specific, but let's just make it highly personalized. So we have folks on our team who a large part of their job is just responding proactively and saying, Hey, that's, thank you so much for sending this. Can I ask you some more questions about you and, who you are and what makes you tick and what kind of things would you like to do? And so orbit has been uh, really interesting. Just the things that kind of come from that, that we just wouldn't capture otherwise, right. They would just kind of be lost out there in space. Scout is similar. So we, the scout network emerged because folks would just say, Hey, I know of you and I know of a small business. Can I put you guys in touch? And people have been doing that for our firm for a really, really long time. But we said, well, what if, what if we just really made clean, clear incentive structure around that and just gave people a little bit more incentive, a little bit of an explicit incentive, which, which is 
if you make an introduction to us to a small business owner and we end up closing the deal, we'll pay you $100,000 cash at close and $25,000 for the vacation of a lifetime. And everybody knows great small businesses, right? Even if you're, you know, a banker, an accountant, an attorney, a sales rep, right? You could be in sales for an organization and go, man, I love when I visit this customer. And he, you know what? He's kind of getting up there in age and doesn't seem like his kids are involved in the business. And he might be a guy worth chatting with, that kind of thing. I love it. And so you mentioned that you opened the Columbia, South Carolina office. You're working remote from the team in Missouri. How has that process been? You know, it has been an adjustment for me because I am more of an extrovert. And I mean, I like verbal affirmation and feedback personally. And so the team has been awesome. And I go to Missouri once every month, two months, or I'll kind of meet up right with parts of the team on the road when we're going to do a site visit for a company and then travel back with them and things like that. So I try and stay connected, you know, to the team as much as I can. There are definitely folks that I don't interact with as much. uh, But we, I feel like do a pretty good job of, you know, kind of we've done things in the past, like book club, or, you know, team lunch or different things like that, that just try and help us stay connected. But there's a lot of autonomy and flexibility, uh, and kind of, you know, independent ownership at permanent equity. And so if I just kind of sat back and waited for folks to engage with me, then we're busy, right? And we have things that occupy our time, you know, every minute of the day. And so I try and just be a little bit more proactive with folks when I'm in town or when I'm out of town and just say, Hey, we'd just love to catch up and hear how you're doing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And tell me about Columbia, South Carolina. I mean, so how would you describe it to somebody um, who hasn't spent a lot of time there? Some people will call it like the armpit of the South because it's super hot and humid. (laughs) Columbia has an interesting dynamic because we're a state capital. We have a lot of state government, federal government, and municipal buildings here. And then we also, you know, are kind of a tertiary market in a lot of ways. So South Carolina is not known for Columbia. They're known for Charleston or Greenville, uh, these kind of higher end, you know, more tourist destinations, lots of kind of net population growth and, and kind of industry there. Columbia does kind of have the stability of all the government and we're also a university town with the University of South Carolina. And so it holds us back in some ways, but creates a good bit more stability. A lot of people kind of define Columbia, in my mind, in not very favorable ways. So like they would say things like, well, we're an hour and a half from the beach and an hour and a half from the mountains, right? Well, that doesn't really highlight any of the kind of native, you know, geographic features we have and, and, and some of the real pros that we have in Columbia. So Columbia in a lot of ways is like an underdog, but I, I kind of like that, you know, from a competitive standpoint, it's a huge benefit, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, buying a small business or doing a real estate deal or even just opening a small business. Five, 10 years ago, if you opened like a really top notch coffee shop, there wasn't that much competition. If you open like a really progressive kind of forward thinking restaurant concept, there's, we're not saturated with a lot of those things. And so it creates a huge opportunity it is a really, really great place to raise a family. I mean, the cost of living is super low. Uh, I live, you know, about a mile and a half from our office, super convenient, no traffic, but we have all the kind of amenities. I live like a stone's throw from a Whole Foods, you know, we kind of have everything that we need uh, without the kind of traffic congestion and headache of, you know, larger markets. Yeah. And how do you think the city will change in the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, are you optimistic about that time frame? And what are some of the things that you alluded to that um, potentially holds the uh, holds Columbia back? Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, we've seen a lot of 
urban revitalization. So our main street and kind of central business district, even five years ago, people would not go there at night. There was just no reason to go there. No kind of hospitality, no retail, no restaurant. Uh, So a lot of that has kind of started to transform downtown. I think that bodes well, right? I mean, it gives me and my wife an excuse to get a babysitter and go out to dinner and go see a movie at a local theater, you know, things like that. So I think those things will continue to be really nice kind of tailwinds, even kind of coronavirus aside. The lasting impact of that is going to be really interesting to see and the ripple effects. But I do think Columbia has a lot going for it. Uh, The university is a huge kind of economic driver. Uh, We also have Fort Jackson, which is the largest military training base in the lower 48. We've got, I don't know how many thousands of, you know, trainees who come through every week. It's a, it's a huge boon to the economy in a lot of different ways. You know, you and I've talked about Airbnb in the past. We own a little Airbnb on our street that we get tons of folks, you know, week in and week out who are just coming in town from all over the U S for a Fort Jackson graduation and need to stay here three nights or, you know, things like that. Got it. Um, and so we spent a day that you mentioned in, uh, in Columbia together a few years back. And one of the things I noticed is you just have this exceptional ability to connect with people. And I think it starts with this genuine curiosity. And you're also an incredible listener. Are those things that have always come naturally to you? Or have you really worked to develop and cultivate those over time? My tendency is to talk too much. So uh, I, I don't know that I've arrived by any means. I I think in a lot of ways, Steve, it's probably fueled by, I learn best kind of biographically. And as much as I like reading a biography or an autobiography about someone, I like even more being able to sit across from somebody who has either done well or not done well, right? You can learn just as much from somebody who's kind of down on their luck, right? Or, Or just consistently hasn't been able to kind of pull through. But I like being able to kind of learn because then I can take the conversation any direction that I want. Whereas when I'm reading a biography, I'm kind of beholden to the writer's presuppositions and the direction they want to take it, you know? And so it's, it's a game for me in a lot of ways, right? When you're sitting across from someone asking them about their success or their failure, because you're also trying to dig past kind of the story that they want to tell versus the story as it really occurred. And so even if somebody's super humble, right? And they're trying to downplay their success, I want to really kind of try and unearth that. Or if somebody's super arrogant. I want to try and figure out what is it about kind of their story or their circumstances that makes them want to overcompensate for this. And we're all messed up, right? We all kind of have things that we aren't proud of. We all have things that we wish we had done better, right? Decisions that we wish we had made or not made. And so I think it's a real delicate thing, right? To sit on the other side from somebody and ask them questions, be able to probe. And I think what we, what I have going for me, I guess, in, in that kind of desire for empathy is that people have a really high BS filter and radar, right? So everybody kind of knows when they're getting sold something, or at least uh, I think most people do. And so it's really nice to be able to sit across the table from somebody and not have to sell them something and just really want to understand more for my own, right? For my own kind of benefit, but also because I think people are relatively lonely and isolated and being able, my wife worked at Starbucks for a number of years before we got married. And she always would say, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like you just kind of are asking somebody like, Hey, how's your day? What do you want to drink? You know, and people are like, Oh, you wouldn't believe what's happened to me, you know, and just we're, we're relatively kind of lonely, I think in a lot of ways. And so I think it's a huge gift to just kind of sit, sit across from somebody and actually be that listening ear sometimes. A hundred percent. What are some of your favorite questions to ask to start peeling back those layers um, and understanding folks? Oh, that's good. You know, I, I mean, it depends a lot of times on the context. 
I like to try and get people off guard a little bit if I can, like to make it not like a, like, like a formal interview. Like if you're sitting down with coffee for somebody, they want to know as much about you probably as you do about them. And so you kind of have to be careful, right. To not make it this like laundry list of questions because then they're just going to probably clam up or get defensive. I like to try and start off with some kind of extreme and work back from there. So like, for example, if I'm sitting down with somebody and they've been super successful, you know, I'll kind of like maybe even throw out for them like a softball kind of pitch of like, hey, I've heard you like have never had any losses or something like that, right? Like I've heard you only have done good real estate deals and help them just kind of open the door to say, you know, actually, let me tell you about sometimes there were things didn't go that well, right? Because if they're kind of prominent in the community or prominent, you know, kind of in a business setting, then they're used to really being kind of cheered on and, you know, rooted for and opinion pieces done on them that are all really favorable. And I like to kind of ask like, Hey, what's, what's the best deal you've done? The worst deal you've done, you know, those kind of things to say, like, what did you learn from that mistake? Right. What did you learn from that really great deal? Those kind of things. Yep. So shifting to kind of your real estate investing experience, one of my favorite stories that you, uh, you shared when we spent a day together was how you sourced a, um, a commercial real estate property that wasn't for sale. Can you retell that story? Sure. Yeah. There's this kind of main thoroughfare, right? In Columbia that is probably not the, the busiest intersection, but it's up there in terms of traffic. And it's kind of the commute from everybody who lives slightly outside of downtown as they get to kind of their offices downtown. And I, you know, have lived in Columbia my whole life, moved away for a little while and then came back and I was really thankful for what Columbia had to offer and driven by this building a million times and just thought this is kind of a weird building. Like it sits really close to the road, which is not normal for any new buildings. There's setbacks and kind of requirements around that but it, it seems like it's kind of attractive. And the tenant there was like a Liberty tax. So I kind of thought, man, this is not the best tenant for this major intersection where there's a lot of visibility. There was a major redevelopment going on. A developer, private developer had turned a Greyhound bus station into a student housing complex. But I just, yeah, kind of became curious about it. And there's certain times where you kind of see something and then you can't unsee it, right? And so I had kind of gotten into the habit of talking to guys who own real estate in Columbia and they just had this amazing innate ability to know. Anytime I asked about a building, they just kind of knew who owned it. And I thought, well, how in the world do you do that, right? Like, I don't I don't know who owns, at one point, I didn't know who owned anything, right? Uh, other than I just knew that there was kind of a specific tenant there. And so I just kind of started to realize, oh, this is actually really publicly available information. I can go to the Richland County. We're in Richland County in South Carolina. I can go to their you know, tax assessor's website and I can pull this up on my phone. And when I drive around and I'm curious about who owns a building, I can pull that up in real time, like huge informational advantage that people used to have to go to the assessor's office and pull the tax map and you know all those things. And I can just look it up here and everybody can do that. And not that many people do. And so I'd driven by this building enough and was trying to get kind of a lay of the land of who owns what. And you start to realize there's a lot of property that's owned by kind of the same groups of people. And so you start to see a lot of names repeat, things like that. But this guy had a, uh, an Oregon address and uh, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Like it kind of piqued my curiosity, right? Like why does this guy in Oregon own this building in Columbia, South Carolina? And then I started Googling him and looked him up and it looked like he was maybe in his seventies. And I thought, man, if there's a guy in his seventies who lives in Oregon, owns this building, probably has an under market rate tenant. Like I'm just going to put a bug in his ear. Right. And so 
called him, said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm Bill Snell. You and I have never met. I live in Columbia. I've driven past your building a million times. If you ever had any interest in selling it, I'd love for you just to kind of keep me in mind, right? Here's my name and number. Just really intrigued and curious about the building. And he said, well, actually, you know, I'm in my 70s and I live in Oregon. I'd love to sell the building. It's kind of like, wow, you don't say, you know? <laughs> and so we kind of went back and forth and negotiated a little bit. The development on the other quarter, he was kind of trying to base the valuation of the building and the property on that, which was not really a fair comparison. It was a much bigger accumulation of parcels. And this one's kind of landlocked. It's about a half acre, 3,100 square foot building that's just kind of dated and needs some work and, and definitely needed some TLC. And so we went back and forth and we ended up kind of agreeing on a price and, the more we talked and the more I got to know him, I just kind of said, you know, Hey, I'm curious, like, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do with this money? Right. Are you going to put it in the market? Like, how are you thinking about the opportunity costs around the sale? And he said, no, you know, I, I don't really like the market. I said, well, what if you, you know, would you have any interest in seller financing a portion of the purchase? And you obviously know this property, you know, the asset, if I default, you're going to take it back and you could get 5%, you know, interest on this, that's better than you're going to do kind of in any other fixed income instrument more than likely. And, and you don't want the volatility of the market. He was like, yeah, that sounds great. So he seller financed 90% of the building at a 15 year amortization, 5% fixed rate, just crazy kind of scenario. Right. And didn't have to go to a bank, just kind of helped kind of streamline the process. And so I do try and operate from the mentality of, you know, how can I kind of take an out of the money bet? Does it cost me anything in this case to go just see like, hey, is there some potential outsized return? The property was never listed. It wasn't with a broker. That would probably kind of, you know, arbitrage out all the real value or alpha that could be generated just by kind of creating a, you know, a price function around it. Yeah. I mean, it's just a perfect example that there are opportunities everywhere and you just have to be willing to search and you have to be willing to ask questions. So shifting to another experience that your just extreme curiosity led you to was working at an Amazon fulfillment center for a day. Can you share that experience? Yeah, it's, it's interesting and timely. Uh, I heard on NPR this morning that, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny right now around fulfillment centers with coronavirus and work conditions. And the interviewer, the woman on the phone, I guess maybe she had gone and maybe done something similar. And uh, she said, you know, it was just so stressful because, you know, she had this, she actually had the same job that I did, which was a picker. So you ha have a scanner, you walk around, they tell you one item to get at a time. And she said, you know, on my scanner, there was this kind of like timer, basically, that kept ticking down that was telling me, hey, if I'm going to, if I'm going to kind of maintain my production speed, I need to kind of hurry up or I'm, I'm falling behind or I'm ahead. And she said, you know, it was just so stressful. And I had the luxury of only doing it for one day, one 12 hour shift. But I kind of thought, man, this is fun, right? It's, it's gamification in a lot of ways, just these very, very small kind of micro actions and how can we speed those up? So I thought it was fascinating, but I am readily to admit, you know, I, I was not doing it day in, day out for long periods of time. And I can understand the kind of psychological effect that they may have. When I sold my ownership in Pendleton Street, it was, I guess, kind of fall time frame, And I had started to hear on the radio and see some advertisements for uh, Amazon hiring for peak season. And I'm 30 years old. Uh, I've got kids. We spend a ton of money on Amazon and we get kind of an ungodly amount of packages from Amazon to our door every day. And so 
I drive by on the interstate uh, frequently. There's an Amazon fulfillment center, CAE one, I think is the, the or CAE three. I can't remember which one it was. Was the facility, and it's a 1.2 million square foot distribution center that they built. Maybe I can't remember. It hasn't been that long. Definitely less than 10 years. Uh, maybe seven or eight years, I think. And uh, I just have always thought there's this huge ominous building, right? That I don't know anything about what goes on in it, but I kind of know what I get on the, on the receiving end. And so I went to my wife and said, Hey, I know I said I was going to take all this time off, but I'm really curious. Will you just entertain a crazy idea for me? Will you let me go work at a fulfillment center for a week? And she said, hell no. <laughs> she was like, you're supposed to be home helping me with the kids. I'm pregnant. You know, I want, I want an extra set of hands. And I said, okay, what about just one shift? It doesn't have to be a week, just one shift. And at the time, you know, Jeff Bezos had just recently become the richest man in the world. And I thought, like, what is it? What is an organization led, you know, by this type of person, right? What, what, is, what are the inner workings like? How do they onboard employees? What is the incentive structure like? How do they train? How do they, you know, just, I, I was so curious about all of it. And so, I went through the process, I applied online, I wrote about the experience, but it was just fascinating to see kind of start to finish all the efficiency, but also kind of all the implicit, I think, purposeful friction on the process. So they did not make it like the lowest possible bar and you sail right through and you end up in the distribution facility. There were areas where I thought this may be a little bit intentional because they want to weed out folks who, you know, if you're not going to wait 30 minutes at the kind of third-party staffing company's waiting room, then you're probably not going to make it through a 12-hour shift, you know, things like that. It was just a fascinating experience to see, I mean, the scale, right, of Amazon's distribution. This is one fulfillment center during peak season that shipped, I think, 280-something thousand packages in one shift in one fulfillment center. It's just amazing scale. And I kind of stayed in very, one very, very small section of the fulfillment center on one level of a three-floor kind of you know operation. And I walked, I think, something like seven or eight miles is what they typically walk in a shift. It was just mind-blowing, right, to see the way that Amazon has kind of continue to fine tune, right? In a low margin business, you got to just constantly try and find ways to find an edge and, and they really have and are. It was fascinating. Yeah. And the scale and the operational know-how gave you such an appreciation that you ended up buying the stock. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. do you, uh, do you still own it? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still logging. Amazon. I'm purposely not logged into my Schwab account. <laughs> Smart. Just to, just to stay long only, right? For sure. So, cause now Amazon's also morphed into where a large percent of the value also resides with um, AWS, Amazon Web Services. Yeah. How do you think about the business going forward? Uh, any challenges that you foresee they'll run into? I don't know that I'm the best person to ask about this. I, I don't have a huge opinion on it. I mean, I've heard kind of the anecdotal things of, you know, if they spun out AWS, it would be its own kind of Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 company. Um, I, I don't have a lot of personal experience either with businesses that are really employing a lot of the AWS tools, but I've definitely heard folks just say like the, this toolbox of tools is just, you know, unparalleled in a lot of ways. I think the Whole Foods acquisition was really interesting. I mean, I get a lot of benefit out of that because my kids have food allergies and, and we, we shop at Whole Foods a lot and it's convenient. Um, I get a lot of benefit from, you know, Prime Now and things like that, that, you know, Prime member discounts. In the back of my mind, every time I kind of scan my barcode on my Whole Foods app to show that I'm a Prime Now member, I just think, 
here you go, Amazon, here's some more data about what I'm buying and when I'm buying it, you know, and how frequently I'm buying, you know, coconut milk or, you know, vegan waffles, you know, all these things. But I do think the trade-off, I guess, you know, to me, I tend to be, Steve, uh, what I call a naive optimist, whereas my wife is kind of a pessimistic realist. And so I tend to, I tend to think this information is not going to be used against me. It's not going to be malicious in any way, you know, any kind of triangulation or data that Amazon has about me, it'll probably be more to my benefit than to my detriment. But there is, I guess, always the skeptic in me that's going, you know, Hey, is this going to, is this going to backfire? Is this going to be used against me? So yeah, for sure. Shifting to another online marketplace, Airbnb, you mentioned you've had a rental on the Airbnb platform for um, a few years now. How has that experience been? And are you kind of optimistic about Airbnb or are there some challenges there? We've had a great experience with it, uh, both as kind of a, a guest when we travel. Uh, you know, I told you I just went to LA a few weeks ago. We stayed at an Airbnb. Great experience. And I've consistently had great experiences staying. I've never, I've not had a nightmare experience, you know, like some people uh, will report. But, um, you know, our experience hosting has been really good. We basically bought this one bedroom, one bath apartment that is maybe 700 square feet. And I've got in-laws who live about an hour away and I have the only grandkids uh, of, of their children. And so my father-in-law has Parkinson's. And so we wanted to try and optimize a scenario where they could come to visit more frequently. We don't have a huge house. We have a guest bedroom, but there's also a crib in there for one of our kids. And so we thought, well, maybe if we buy this, they can stay there, they can come, you know, we'll have more accessibility. My father-in-law can kind of have the space he needs to rest and things like that when he does. And then we'll just put it on Airbnb otherwise. So we bought it, we went to Ikea and spent like five or $6,000 to fully deck this thing out. You know, nobody's ever lived there, right? It's just kind of been a rental. And so it's not cluttered. It's very kind of clean and cool aesthetic. And uh, it's really kind of blown past my expectations in terms of demand. The, I guess, angle that I've really liked that I think Airbnb might be able to do a better job capturing is kind of the medium term or longer term rental market. So we, you know, we, we have tons of folks who will book for a weekend because of like, you know, the Fort Jackson graduation or, you know, USC graduation or football games, all the things that kind of drive demand here. But we've also had some longer term renters. So we, uh, we had a contract nurse, you know, a travel nurse who came for 13 weeks and was paying us like 400 to $450 a week. And she was getting reimbursed. So it was like huge cash flow for us. Now put it in context, this unit kind of unfurnished in a 12 month rental pool, kind of, you know, 12 month lease would probably be $750 a month. Here we are getting 400 to $450 a week. The yield on that. Now we do have a little bit more expense. We pay, for the utilities and we pay for internet and, you know, some things that we, I wouldn't otherwise incur. And, you know, we have to make sure that the sheets stay fresh and, you know, it's clean and all those kind of things, but the yield is definitely there. We just had a guy who left uh, in mid January. He was actually there for six months. He was paying like between 1900 and $2,000 a month to stay. And he came, I think for the military, he was getting reimbursed, didn't really care, you know, per se about the cost. And, uh, you know, I think Airbnb, it would not be that hard for them to kind of open up a specific segment of the platform that would help capture those. I obviously like those, right. It's less kind of churn. It's less having to clean. It's just easier to manage. He's just kind of there and I can forget about it and make sure he's stocked with stuff he needs. But, uh, 
I did in, in kind of that process figure out there's some other platforms that cater specifically to like travel nurses, you know, and things like that. And their fees are lower. I don't think they insure quite at the same level that Airbnb does. So I've never kind of gone rogue and gone off platform to try and cut fees just because it seems like the, you know, the cost benefit of that isn't really worth it. Right. Because they're going to provide insurance in case, you know, the guy torches the place or something like that. But the other platform that I came across, it was specific just to travel nurses. And they charged a hundred dollar flat fee and no percentage kind of tail on the back end. So I would think, you know, Airbnb could probably capture some of that if they wanted to. And it may be that it's, not opportunistic for them to do that. But I know that as a host, the longer terminals are great. And, you know, I, I would love to optimize more around that. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how Airbnb fares amidst all this travel hiatus. Um, and if they have the balance sheet and liquidity to kind of get through it and actually use it to get stronger as a platform, or um, if they really take a hit. We got an email from them. You know, we didn't have any, any bookings on the calendar. Uh, I, I kind of intentionally blocked out some time for my in-laws and family to use it. But we did get emails saying like, Hey, we're going to refund folks hundred percent, you know, if you, if you decide to cancel because of this. And so I thought that was a smart move on their part, right? Obviously you burn a lot of goodwill by just trying to kind of hold back fees or hold back bookings, but we have a pretty lenient cancellation policy, but I know there's a lot of hosts like we went to LA. I mean, I think even if we canceled within 24 hours, we were going to pay 50% of the overall cost. So, you know, it, it depends right on the demand in the market too. Yeah. But shifting gears a bit, I read that or in an article a few years back that you have an appreciation for letters. I think you said they help you look under the hood and um, how others have dealt with similar circumstances. So are there any favorite letters that you've, or that come to mind or um, that you can kind of point us to? Yeah. It's funny. I had forgotten about that article. It, it prompted me in a lot of ways to try and write to my kids. And I've heard people do this in kind of creative and unique ways. We have some friends who set up an email address for one of their kids and they just will periodically send emails to it. And also like their extended family will do that. Like they have uh, an aunt who lives in another city, but is really close to this child. And she'll just email the kid kind of a repository of whether it's life advice or like, Hey, I just got off FaceTime with you and you know, you're, six years old and you just told me this thing, you know, kind of an interesting, and they haven't, obviously she's a six year old, so they haven't handed over the email address to her, but I thought that was kind of interesting. I lost my dad he passed away in 2012. And it's kind of been this interesting process, obviously of having a great relationship with him, really missing him, uh, treasuring the time that I did have with him. But for a long time, I've just really held to anything that I had that he had kind of written, right? Like, little notes, right? Or a birthday card or things. And my mom was really good. Not that long after he passed away, giving me and all my siblings kind of this like, you know, big Rubbermaid container full of stuff that was specific to us, you know, different things that he had kind of saved or, or kind of notes he had written to us, things like that. And I just treasure it so much. And so what I've tried to do, and I don't do it that consistently is just if I see my kids experience like maybe even a high or a low, right? Or if I see them kind of navigate a life circumstance in a certain way, just trying to write them a quick, you know, kind of letter to say, hey, you're, you know, this is the date, you're three years old, I watched you, you know, just be really selfless, right? Or I watched you, you know, really struggle through something and come out of the other side of it. You manage your emotions really well at three, you know, whatever it may be. There was a book that uh, I think Shane Parrish from Farnham Street originally kind of put on my radar maybe four or five years ago called Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son. 
And I think it kind of went around, you know, in the circles that we're in. And I think maybe it's fictionalized, right? I'm not really sure. I've heard kind of, you know, differing accounts of that. But just thought it was such a great kind of lens into the way that you can kind of give prescriptive advice, you know, in kind of a concise manner. And there's something about kind of the evolution of life circumstances that letters help capture, right? Because they're just so personable and so kind of uh, situation specific that, you know, I, I don't know. There's something about kind of old letters. Like my, my, my father-in-law is a huge World War II buff, right? He's got all this kind of World War II memorabilia and, and these kind of old weapons and old uniforms and things like that. But a lot of folks who are into kind of World War II history, they just will go through and read these letters, right? That are just kind of nuggets of information about, you know, I'm in this platoon and we're moving into this town. And then they'll kind of go look at these big military maps and see like, oh yeah, this, he was, you know, he was going on this campaign or whatever. And I think there's just something that is so kind of tactile about a letter, right? That, that's, that I don't want to lose and I don't want my kids to kind of miss out on. It also is just hugely differentiating, right? If I get a letter in the mail, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and go, what was, what necessitated, right? This amount of urgency and this amount of kind of weight to write a letter versus like an email. I let those slip through the cracks all the time, even though I try not to. Uh, I just think it's a huge differentiator. Absolutely. And I love that idea about setting up an email address for, um, for your kid that you can kind of just send letters to and something I'm going to think a lot about. So you have four kids, kind of six and under. What are some things you've learned um, about being a dad? Oh my goodness. It is, uh, it is just the most kind of growth inducing mechanism that I could imagine outside of marriage. My wife and I uh, are very much on the same page in terms of the way that we think about kind of child rearing and prioritization around that. My wife worked for a nonprofit for a long time before we got married and even after we got married, but before we started having kids. And so we, uh, we knew that we wanted to have a bigger family I'm the oldest of four. My wife's one of two. And so we just kind of thought we don't want to have three kids because we don't want there to be a middle child, which I don't really know. (laughs) I don't know there's much value to that, but we are a little bit of like, like counseling and psychology junkies in in a way. And so thinking about kind of family roles, right. And and the way birth order takes, uh, you know, a shape in in personality and things. So my wife was always adamant. I don't want to have three and I I don't just want to have two kids. And so we have four kids and yeah, the oldest is six. We have six, four, three, and one and a half. And it's just so much fun, right? I mean, it's, it's a labor of love, you know, in the truest sense. And um, we just kind of knew if we spread our kids out, we'll probably just stop having them. And so let's just keep going and kind of get it all out of the way. And at one point, we had four kids, four and under. We just basically, you know, haven't slept for like five or six years. And and anytime there's a light at the end of the tunnel and like, oh, you know, our youngest kid is kind of sleeping now and they're on a schedule uh, and they're not a baby anymore. My wife will kind of get, you know, that thought in her head of what if we just have one more? You know, I kind of miss the baby phase, which I think I think we're done uh, with four. But, you know, I think that there have been some really helpful things in kind of my uh, formation as a parent. Uh, one of them is this idea of, I like to call it a long leash early. So there's a lot of, you know, the, the antithesis of this would be like a helicopter parent, you know, and, and you see this a lot with kids kind of in early adolescence, 
all the way up into kind of high school, but, but definitely in those early formative years, you know, it's easy to kind of want to rescue your kid, right. From doing that thing that, you know, they shouldn't do because they're going to fall down or something like that. I'm not talking about putting my kids in, you know, grievous danger or anything like that, but just trying to let them learn early and kind of have a long enough leash that they can go and figure out, you know what, I probably shouldn't do this because either the natural consequences of doing it are really bad or based on kind of the rules of our house, my parents imposed consequences are going to kind of dissuade me from doing it again. And so what I like about having multiple kids is that it kind of forces, uh, it forces a fair amount of kind of selflessness in the household, both for me and my wife, right. And for each of our kids, like nobody kind of gets what they want all of the time. And I think that's just, I think that's kind of a normative thing in life that is helpful to learn early on, right. Is that I don't get my way all the time, even when I can, when I try to do everything to optimize for that, uh, life just doesn't work on those terms. And so it's been super helpful just to, I think, see what my kids kind of learn, right. See what things kind of, they take to heart and then reflect back on that and go, you know what, I'm basically doing the same thing. I'm kind of throwing a temper tantrum in my own way because I don't get what I want or because life didn't happen the way I thought it was supposed to. So that's been hugely beneficial for me as I try and kind of mirror it for my kids, right. And, help them learn along the way. Excellent. And so you've also, you and your wife have decided to homeschool. How did you think about homeschooling versus the traditional education system? Yeah, it's been, you know, kind of a process. Me being the oldest of four, I went through public school education all the way through, but uh, my younger three siblings went to a public Montessori school that they had a really, really good experience at. And I, you know, I didn't get that. I didn't go to Montessori school, but I kind of watched and thought this is really interesting. I have a brother who is not kind of a traditional, you know, high achiever in a school setting who did really well in Montessori. And I have a sister who is very high achieving kind of type A and she did really well in Montessori. And so I thought the flexibility of that had always kind of struck me as curious. My wife and I operate, I guess, under the mentality of kind of, we'll think about it for each kid one year at a time, right? So for some of our kids, it may be better for them to go to kind of a traditional kind of learning in a structured sense. But right now we're, we have the luxury of kind of learning and kind of taking it one step at a time and kind of dipping our toe in the water. So our six-year-old started homeschooling kind of lightly last year uh, when nothing was kind of required from a curriculum standpoint. My wife kind of learned a little bit of the routine, right? And that some days are just a huge fail. You know, everybody is having a bad day and just doesn't go well. And she's been able to kind of slowly dip her toe in the water for our younger kids too, uh, our, our four-year-old in particular and our three-year-old also. Like there's things that they can do and just to see them benefit from some structure, right? And even her, my wife, to benefit from some structure around the house. And, you know, my wife has kind of gone to school, so to speak, in a very kind of DIY sense of just all the different methodologies. And there's just a million resources out there. But she's really learned well, I think, from some folks who homeschooled like 20 years ago. And they just are like, you know, we didn't have all of this, right? We didn't have all these resources in this online curriculum. And there's tons of moms who are creators out there who've just put in the time, created a resource and charged $10 for it, right? For a PDF download of like these great kind of homeschool curriculums to kind of learn reading or writing or spelling or whatever it may be. So the world is kind of your oyster, I think in a lot of ways, but the hardest part probably is just the paralysis of all these options, right? Is like, do you want to do this methodology or do you want to do this philosophy? And just kind of, you know, picking one and, and kind of trying and trying to be consistent, I think is the hardest part. 
Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of start to wrap up. I mean, Mills, this has been so much fun and I've learned a lot. Um, I always learn a lot talking to you and there are so many threads that I'm going to kind of continue to pick your brain about in the years forward. So I really appreciate the time. One last closing question. What is your favorite restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina? Ooh, man, that's so tough. My wife and I are going on a date. There's kind of two places that we go. Uh, both of them are closed right now because of the coronavirus. Uh, Bourbon is a place on Main Street that uh, is just a great, it's kind of a, a Cajun fusion place that, that we really like. Uh, and then if we want like a low-key date, less kind of formal, we go to this place, Home Team Barbecue. They're out of basically out of business right now, out of commission, but they've got these amazing kind of smoked wings. They're really good. Well, next time I'm in town, I'll have to uh, check one of those places out. Carolina story. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And I'm excited to share more interviews in the weeks ahead. If you have any feedback on how I can improve the podcast, feel free to reach out to me directly on Twitter at SVafier, or you can also find me on LinkedIn. Stay healthy and stay safe.